Hi, and welcome to a special series of The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. And this is Eastern Africa's Jihadis, produced in partnership with the Friedrich Ebert Foundation, or FES. Over five weeks, we'll explore the roots and spread of jihadism across the Eastern African coast, from Somalia to Mozambique. To kick things off for us, today I'm speaking with historian and academic Ngala Chome about the history of Islamist discourse and the rise of militant movements in the region. Dr. Chome, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, we're here today to take a sort of broad scope look at violent religious extremism along the coast of Eastern Africa and specifically the roots of it. Now, of course, the presence of it in this region even precedes the, the global war on terror. Osama bin Laden was, was, as our listeners know, based in Sudan. And there was, of course, the 1998 bombings in, in Kenya and Tanzania. If we were to look for the origins of this violent religious extremism in this region, where, where, where should we start looking? So for me, I always try and trace the ideological evolution of the ideas that have that this sort of religious extremism has 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 come to be based over the years it, it's important to 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 state here before we move on that there's a difference between when we talk about islamism and and islam as religion islamism is clearly a political ideology a sort of religionized politics uh, while islam is a system of belief so those are two different things but there's a relationship in the sense that um, Islamists have appropriated Islamic religious imagery and language to articulate a political vision. Now, that in itself has a long history, not only in the in the Muslim world in general, but also in the East African coast, where Islam can be traced about a thousand years. And therefore, whatever has been happening in the wider Muslim world, in this case, I'm talking about the Gulf region, the Middle East. Um, in terms of um, um, developments in the Muslim religion has also had uh, reverberations and influences across the East African coast or what is popularly known as the Swahili coast. And therefore, one major trend of across the centuries since Islam f uh, first came to the Swahili coast is this tendency for movements to emerge that seek a religious renewal within an attempt to take it back, as it were, to its original ideological sources. The claim usually, or the argument usually, is that local variations of Islamic practice and belief have veered off of the original text or, or Sharia law in this case. And, and such movements have been referred to as sort of Salafist religious renewal movements. Now, this has happened, of course, in Saudi Arabia, sort of like the origin of, of what is now known as the Wahhabist doctrine, which, which was in itself a Muslim reformist doctrine. But this has also taken place in East Africa, in particular in Mombasa, which was a respected Islamic religious center, especially during the 18th century and the early decades of, of the 19th century, but also in Zanzibar. And, and so therefore a tradition was set, an intellectual tradition was set beginning the 1920s and 1930s uh, through which Muslims in the region, in, on the Swahili coast, would engage with debates that were coming across the Indian Ocean from, 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 the, from the wider Muslim world in, in the Middle East regarding what people deem to be uh, proper religious practice uh, and belief. Of course, the context under which these debates were happening was the expansion of European domination across the Indian Ocean, uh, You know, a region that many of its inhabitants had regarded as 
a sort of political geographical space that had symbolized the Islamic uh, link between politics and belief. Now, from 1979 with the Iranian Revolution, um, there is a competition between Iran and Saudi Arabia in particular uh, regarding which form of Islamic doctrine becomes dominant across the world. And therefore, since East African Islam is predominantly Sunni with a Shafi intellectual tradition, many young uh, East African Muslims would gravitate towards uh, universities in Saudi Arabia or universities in, in, in countries that profess the Sunni a branch of Islam. So you're talking about Al-Alzar in Egypt, uh, talking about the University of Medina in Saudi Arabia, um, but also um, um, University of Khartoum in, in Sudan and also as far as Libya. So, you're, so you have a returning of these graduates who had gone to study in the 1980s, coming back to Kenya, to Tanzania, to Mozambique in, in Somalia to challenge local traditional religious scholars and clerics. Um, not only because these younger graduates uh, had a more globalist view of Islam and were more concerned about the place of Islam in global politics, but they also uh, were able to put to use the networks that they had garnered by, by travel abroad to set up a local um, Islamic charities and community-based organizations, uh, sort of Islamic study groups, uh, debating clubs in the 1980s in particular, where debates regarding proper religious practice uh, would take place, but also um, channeling a voice or mobilizing the Muslim public towards beginning to petition the you know East African s states for broader inclusion within the body politic of Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, countries that uh, were and still are uh, dominated by Christian Western educated elites. And so this is what ushers in the period of the 1990s with the return of multi-party politics um, where you have um, um, a number, a network, a very dense network of Islamic charities with a Salafist doctrine, with a reformist mindset, seeking to enter the political process. Now, did did this ideology, did it develop somewhat separately across, you know, Sudan, Somalia, Kenya, and the rest of East Africa? Or was this always quite linked and in dialogue with each other? It was actually quite linked. Um, and, and this is particularly because of the influence of uh, Saudi Arabian patronage. And Saudi Arabian ideas, you know, so 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 there were there were habits doctrine in particular, and and due to the spread of funding and scholarships that people would would easily get to go and study in Saudi Arabia or Saudi Arabian influenced um, um, Muslim centers, this is where people would meet from across uh, the the Muslim world, from Sudan, from uh, from Kenya, from Tanzania, from Uganda, um, from Somalia. So so you are seeing in particular from the 80s events, global events or global trends where younger Muslims from across the Muslim world, from, from different countries, meeting to debate the place of Islam in the world. One, of course, major event which we'll talk about today is the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and, and the setting up of Al-Qaeda um, around 1997. Um, and so this has um, important reverberations across the 1990s. We know that Al-Qaeda... For example, sets up base in Sudan in 1992, and it, it is from that base that Al Qaeda was able uh, to spread its wings across the Horn of Africa and the wider East African region, all the Swahili coast, um, um, supporting you know anti-American militants in Somalia, 
um, uh, in this case, Al-Itihad uh, al-Islami, which, you know, sort of becomes Al-Shabaab in 2006, but also uh, sending, you know, its its um, its foot soldiers, you know, people like Fazul Harun uh, or, or Harun Fazul, um, who becomes the, the, the leader of Al-Qaeda in East Africa, responsible or behind the twin bombings of the American embassies uh, located in Nairobi and Al Salam in 1998 so you see like this very early al qaeda activity that is coming off of a background of vigorous um, muslim debates about reform and politics most of these salafist organizations that had set up in the 1980s by that have been set up by graduates who are coming from study in Saudi Arabia and, and, and other parts of the Muslim world, it is from these organizations, you know, I'm not saying all of them, but it is from these organizations that Al-Qaeda first found its local associates and affiliates. Mm. Now, now, staying on the East African side of things, you took us up to about the point of the introduction of multi-party politics in Kenya. How, what, what role did that play in this development on the domestic political side that, that you're describing? Okay, so especially if you look at Kenya and Tanzania, which share the East African coast and on which the the Swahili coast spans, it is important to remember that a part of the Swahili coast, if not all, was not formally colonized by European powers, in this case uh, by the British and the Germans. Um, Zanzibar pretty much maintained its autonomy uh, throughout the colonial period. Uh, uh, this is because of the prestige and status that was given to the Sultan of Zanzibar, the Omani Sultan of Zanzibar, in particular by the British. Um, uh, and therefore, uh, you have this kind of awkward two legal systems uh, throughout the colonial period that, that has an impact on the post-colonial direction of the relations between the coast of Zanzibar and mainland Tanganyika, but also the coast of Kenya and upcountry Kenya during the colonial period. Because of that tension, because of what was increasingly a racial and religious tension in 1960s, Muslim politics in both Kenya and Tanzania took on a low profile um, in the 1960s, 1970s, and 1980s. It is only in the 1990s, um, and in particular due to the activities, as I've just mentioned, of the re of the young returning graduates from um, from from the wider Muslim world, um, but also because of the opening up of the political space where we first begin to see a sort of mobilization of the Muslim public in formal public politics. Um, and so therefore, even before Al-Qaeda sets up shop in, in Sudan and to spread its wings across, across East Africa, there was already an attempt to mobilize the Muslim voice uh, so that they could participate in the political processes of these countries as Muslims, quote-unquote. Um, um, so this idea that you could, we could mobilize Muslims as a political constituency was already taking shape in the 1990s. Mm. Now, how did this all change and, and even accelerate after the start of the period of the global war on terror after 2001? So, well, um, so what happened is that um, there is immediate um, uh, physical violent reaction from the state. Um, in 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 all three countries, in, all, in Uganda, in Kenya, and in Tanzania. So, in Kenya, the the proposal to register an an, an Islamic party, you know, uh, referred to as the Islamic Party of Kenya (IPK), was immediately refused by the government of the day, and this immediately led to uh, street demonstrations and riots, 
and and what has not been actually appreciated uh, recently in kind of Kenyan historiography is that um this violent reaction against the IPK also led to a an emergence of a more radical fringe within the unregistered party and it is this radical fringe within that uh, that unregistered party that took hold of uh, a number of mosques you know what what was an informal space of mobilization and and it is from this radical fringe that people such as Sheikh Abu Drogo who became much later um the most well-known Islamist propagandist in the region comes from in Tanzania when when the police violently broke down a meeting in 1998 uh that was set up by Sheikh uh, Shabani Magezi um, um if i remember correctly um, um a meeting that was meant to stage an interfaith sort of uh, religious debate riots took place 2 days later and, and a number of people were actually shot dead by the police um, um a year later the organization known as Simba Simba wa Mungu emerges and, and is associated by Sheikh Ponda Isaponda who becomes uh, if you like Sheikh Abu Drogo's equivalent in Tanzania you know the face the public face of uh, Islamist politics but also religious extremism and so therefore for those who felt that their voice was not being heard um uh, within the states of Tanzania and 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 Kenya uh, the option for more extremist uh, religious posturing was always available especially provided by the networks um um that that al-Qaeda elements were setting up during that time in 1998 and early 2000s in Tanzania in particular the activities of uh, the Ansar Muslim Youth Center were very pivotal for 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 more extremist re- religious extremist posturing so long before the emergence of al-Shabaab in 2006 uh, you're beginning to see uh this sort of al-Qaeda sympathies in the region but also sympathies that crossed the borders and around which actual networks of indoctrination had been established Hi everyone we will be back in a moment but first a message from our friends at Foreign Policy Could empowering women in the workplace be the simplest way to boost the global economy The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women is a new limited series podcast from Foreign Policy Host Rina Nainen talks to women around the world in places like Kenya, Nigeria, and India who are changing the status quo in surprising ways. Listen to The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, you mentioned uh Sheikh Aboud Rogo. Were figures like him and then his his followers, were they marginal in the Islamic communities in the region or 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 did they actually play a somewhat central role? Pretty marginal actually in the wider Muslim community. I mean, I think it's important to emphasize that we are actually speaking about a very minority section of the Muslim community in the region. Um um but because they are but because they were radical, loud and the activities um attracted more attention you know we tend to talk about them but actually the wider muslim public has has continued to petition the political process um um using you know democratic uh, uh lawful and constitutional means but the background of the profiles of these individuals who became prominent in the religious extremist uh fringe is that they were peripheral within the communities in which they came from this is very important to note um so 
for example the 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 availability of 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 scholarships for further study in the muslim world that that be, you know that that took a spike in the in the late 70s and and in the 80s gave an opportunity for individuals muslims in the region who um had not were not coming from very respectable backgrounds if you like to rise to the hierarchy very quickly and to come to set up organizations from which they would speak as respected scholars as 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 respected clerics so there was also sort of an internal struggle there of individuals who were trying to negotiate their status within an existing hierarchy um so it is not only targeted against non-muslims it is also a war within 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 the muslim community itself and for most of these individuals like Sheikh Abu Drogo uh, Ponda Isa Ponda uh, in Tanzania they were coming from segments of the muslim population muslim community um 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 that was 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 down the hierarchy and through this kind of uh, religious extremist politics they were seeking to to negotiate their status what was the political atmosphere at the time uh, specifically in Kenya where these grievances were finding some resonance among certain communities so again take you back um in in history you know when we when most east african states gained independence uh, between 1960 and 1963 muslims in the way in which our colonial power was exercised were deemed as a privileged lot by the majority african population right so this for example is at the heart of the zanzibar revolution in 1964 in kenya certain settlements were made between uh, the muslim leadership and and the emerging western educated elite you know led by jomo kenyatta and janmogi odinga and tombo and others in, in in those agreements uh, respect for religious minorities for example respect for for muslim titles for example uh, were anchored within the independence constitution and after that uh, muslim public politics went mute for about 3 decades until the 1990s now of course um the mobilization of the muslim voice is happen is happening in the 1990s for two reasons one because of a feeling of exclusion during the first three decades of post independent rule you know you, you have similar um sentiments in 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 Tanzania as well in particular you know mainland tanganyika versus uh, zanzibar which is which is predominantly muslim um so the 1990s with the return to multiparty politics it gives a window for these sentiments to come out in the public right so ideas regarding exclusion in education provision in infrastructure uh, provision to you know to predominantly muslim areas exclusion in employment in government service you know this this entire litany it is it, it is it is these pre-existing sentiments that would be communicated not only using uh, constitutional means but also articulated uh, using religious lenses by many muslims um that al shabab in 2006 would tap into to spread its 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 original influence. And once this did start to take hold and you had Al-Shabaab formed on the Somalia side, how did those different uh movements start to interlink the sort of more Swahili coast Eastern Africa one and the movement taking shape in Somalia? One there's always been a link um across the East African coast, the Swahili coast, the Muslim coast. For, for most of these individuals we are talking about um at a more personal level you will find that they they themselves had kinship networks um this is this is an area 
that long ago was centered around an exchange of ideas, goods, and people, right? So, so the networks are fairly well established um, across across the coast. They're based on ideas, they're based on trade, but they're also based on religion. Um, 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 so that when it comes to political agitation um, in the 1990s, this sort of links become very important. And what is also important in the 1990s is that there's a uh, arrival of the internet, uh, arrival of cable television, and also the spread of radio frequencies. So the setting up of radio stations, for example, Islamic radio stations. So through these kind of channels of communication, the Muslim public across this region is being updated on happenings across the wider Muslim world. You know, this is the time of the Gulf War. This this is the time of war in, of, of the war in Afghanistan. And so, therefore, this idea of the global narrative of Muslim victimization become it becomes concretized in the minds of. Of, of many Muslims in the region, from as far as Cabo Delgado in, 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 in Mozambique, who are beginning to see themselves as part of a global struggle that was also becoming increasingly anti-American. So that by the late 1990s, in random mosques in Nairobi, in random mosques in Kampala, in Dar es Salaam, in Zanzibar, in Mombasa, uh, summons would even sound like they were written by one person. You know, it was increasingly anti-American, very radical, but also sometimes issuing um, open um, um, support to to organizations such as Al-Qaeda. Al, Al this is talking about nine, between 1998 and 2002. Um, it is all this kind, it is, it is this infrastructure, if you like, of individual connections, but also a communication that um, an organization such as Al-Shabaab that emerged in Somalia in 2006 taps into to spread its message regionally. So there are two things you have to say. One is that there is, of course, evidence of an agenda within Al-Shabaab, uh, which was opposed by, by some members of, of, of the council, the Shura, um, um, to turn Al-Shabaab into, in, into a truly transnational organization. So, so for those individuals who wanted to turn Al-Shabaab into a transnational organization and not just a Somali organization, these sort of regional networks that I was talking about, um, um, spanning... Uganda, Kenya, and Tanzania became very important, and and I will explain that. But but for those who are merely interested in for for Al Shabab to contribute to Somali national politics only, um, and these networks were not were not were not were not very important. And of course, there is wrangling uh, uh, within within this within the Council of Al Shabab regarding which direction to take. And of course, uh, I think um, um, Al Shabab becoming a transnational organization um, as an idea. Um, um, won in, in, in this conflict. And of course, by that time, um, uh, many, many East African nationals have been recruited into the membership ranks of Al-Shabaab. Now, in Nairobi, for example, or in Kenya, it starts with you know youth uh, uh, movements, uh, organizations such as the Muslim Youth Center, uh, uh, at, uh, established out of the Pumwani, Pumwani um, Riyadh Mosque uh, in Nairobi, on which Sheikh Abu Drogo, for example, exercised, you know, exercised particular um, um, influence, um, ideological influence. It it was actually named by by a UN monitoring uh, a group report as as the largest support network um, of Al Shabaab in Kenya. Um, um, uh, and the Muslim Youth Center, uh, let's not forget, also had links with the. Ansar Muslim Youth Center based in Tanga in Tanzania. And through these kind of institutional networks, people would be uh, radicalized, recruited, 
and sent to Somalia to join Al-Shabaab uh, from as early as 2006. Uh, and this went on fairly undetected, actually, um, up until 2011 when, when Kenya sends its defense forces to Somalia to root out Al-Shabaab ostensibly from its key bases there. Now, you've painted a, a very deep historical picture and, and also this picture in which these movements are both transnational to a degree, but also very much deeply domestic and, and deeply embedded in local politics, I think is a very important is a very important nuance that doesn't always get captured in some of the policy debate. Can you just walk us through how it spread from Kenya, Tanzania, Somalia, and then now more recently, of course, there's been this explosion of violence in northern Mozambique? Um, I mean, yeah, you're right to say that the spread of this kind of religious extremism in the region, I've argued, usually s- spreads through what has been referred to as a globalization process. So it's it's sort of picking on a, a more transnational global narrative of Muslim victimization, quote-unquote, and communicating that through local experiences of being Muslims in these Christian-dominated countries. That has been the strategy since the 1990s. What happens is that Al-Shabaab becomes the main anchor of spreading this message in the region. Um, it, It becomes very important for these sort of Kenyan, Tanzanian, Ugandan um, cells or networks because Al-Shabaab could offer a salary for the first time uh, for believing in these ideas. Al-Shabaab offered military training, um, but also Al-Shabaab offered the opportunity um, to participate in the so-called jihad. Um, And so therefore it became, as an organization, very important for these pre-existing networks uh, uh, spanning Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda. Um, which is why people like Sheikh Budrogo, you know, Sheikh Abin Manali in, in in Nairobi became became very crucial for the recruitment of of Kenyan nationals or Tanzanian nationals into Al Shabaab. But by 2014-2015, um, um, key things happened there. So one is that the Al Shabaab leadership in in Somalia becomes a little bit disappointed by by these east african supporters uh, for kenya for example the network that had at that time become known as al hijra um uh, which which one would say is the is the is the, is the, is, the, is, the, is the name that came after or came to replace muslim youth center um uh, was was quite disappointing the fact that he, they were not able to issue a large complex attack in kenya um, something that they had either promised the leadership of Shabab in Somalia or the leadership of Shabab in Somalia had expected of them. Um, similarly, in Tanzania, not, nothing of the sort had happened uh, up until 2014-2015. And also, during the same time, the leadership of this Al-Hijra, Kenyan Al-Hijra network, was being seriously depleted through assassinations. You know, so at 2015, we had already lost Sheikh Budrogo, for example. We had already lost Makaburi. These were key uh, uh, figures within within the network. And and many of them, actually, by 2015, were on the run from the police or or, or, they, they, or, or, or they had either been killed. Al-Shabaab had to take them under their wings and actually set up a new mil- military unit known as Jay Shaiman, which most of these kind of um, East African fighters uh, joined and staged themselves in the in the vast bony forest that traverses 
Kenya's northern coast and, and, and southern Somalia. So that's another story that I'll pick on uh, a bit later. The other effect of the physical response uh, against this movement in 2014-2015 is that uh, some of these militants spread themselves further south. Um, 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 for Kenya, many of them actually escaped Tanzania for cover. Uh, and into Tanzania, uh, when a lot of a lot of uh, the counterterrorism measures were being targeted at, you know, the northeastern coastal uh, sides of Tanzania, you know, Tanga, the militants were escaping even further south towards Mozambique. So talking about 20, 2015, 2016, you know, it is only two years later that the first major terrorist attack that is now linked to what we now call Al Shabaab in Mozambique took place, and you know. Looking at the initial arrests that were made by Mozambican police in 2016-2017, a number of Kenyans, a number of Tanzanians, uh, even Somalis, were found to have hid themselves within within you know jihadi military training camps in Mozambique. It is from these kind of confluence that that uh, uh, the group initially known as Al Suna Wal Jama, some other journalists have have have, have called it Swahili Suna. Uh, and now commonly known as al-shabab emerged from yeah so there you can see a clear link between uh, the militants that had established themselves in Kenya and Tanzania with what now became the al-shabab group in Mozambique would you say along those lines that what we've seen in northern Mozambique in some ways it's a spillover or even byproduct of the crackdown then that we saw in Kenya and Tanzania i think i think the crackdown gave it impetus I wouldn't say the crackdown was the the origin of the group, you know. So there's also um, um, a distinctly Mozambican story to the emergence of the Al Shabab group in Cabo Delgado that that I think we need to kind of pay attention to, you know. So of course there still isn't much agreement amongst you know scholars, journalists, and other researchers regarding the exact origins of the group. But but I think for me the most convincing uh, tale. Uh, detailed by a researcher um, named Eric Genoid, is is this kind of arrival of two preachers in Cabo Delgado who were born raised there, but 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 you know took refuge in Tanzania, in you know Tanga and Zanzibar, and had fallen under the influence of of, of a Salafi group known as Quranists. You know, um, so people who don't quite follow the precepts of the Quran. When it comes to, for example, praying five times a day, they actually pray three times a day. Um, they pray without without washing themselves, which is different from the dominant uh, Muslim tradition. Um, it is these kind of it is this these these kind of preachers that went back to Cabo Delgado and sort of weaved the a pre-existing narrative of exclusion amongst the Muani community from which this group emerged from, um, um, vis-a-vis you know, the dominant Makonde Christian group, um, um, you know, in Cabo Delgado province. So again, you see a similar thing here of weaving religious narrative and political grievance uh, to channel out a new sort of, uh, a new sort of uh, intellectual, not only intellectual tradition, but also proposal regarding what needs to be done to correct that feeling of exclusion. For, for, for this group, excluding themselves from uh, the wider Muslim public actually became 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 the uh, result. The, um, and and you know between 2015 and 2016, they started 
getting into trouble not only with the not only with the with the with the law enforcers and police but also with the wider muslim public their mosques will be raided for example um and they and their leaders will be arrested it is said that it was because of this reaction that that group increasingly turned violent and and of course the first major attack um um was was the attack on 17th of october 2017 um in 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 Mosi prior yeah now in gala we're we're running out of uh, time <laughs> mostly because we have such a huge topic to try to cover it's now been decades since the emergence of this new religious extremism across the region and you've described very much you know the way these are both transnational and global and local at the same time have the regional states obviously this is a collective problem they're now facing the the countries in the region have, have regional states found any effective ways in your estimation of trying to curb this contain it what are they doing that's definitely not working um I, so i i'm i've i've uh, made these recommendations uh, elsewhere where um um looking at the sort of regional nature of this threat it will be very important for regional governments to devise and come up with you know uh, frameworks and strategies that have a regional approach into addressing preventing and countering uh this threat um um you know and i mention you know organizations such as uh you know egad um, um the esc the east african community even SADC, um, to think about how they can come together and and um, um, not only devise a common framework, common strategy, but also cooperate in intelligence gathering, in in uh, counterterrorism training, but also in more preventative approaches. You know, talking about you know PCVE strategies, for example. Um, I haven't quite seen um, any example of that, and 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 also the response you always get when you're speaking to uh, this sort of this sort of regional um, governmental authorities uh, or organizations is that there's always a problem of coordination. Um, um, these are extremely bureaucratic institutions, um, and and this is actually the source of the problem. Um, um, if the response is coming from Organizations that are not as flexible, that 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 are not as adaptive to an extremely changing um, environment, then you have a problem because the the extremist networks, as we have just explained, um, in the region is highly adaptive, is highly flexible, and asymmetrical as well in the way in in the way in which it operates. So the response also needs to be kind of tailored towards that dynamic nature of the of of the threat itself. Uh, sadly. The organizations that we depend on uh, still function as, as highly bureaucratic institutions. Thank you very much for coming on and, and fielding such, such such a long century of developments. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening. Once again, The Horn is a podcast from the International Crisis Group, and this special summer series is produced in partnership with the Friedrich Ebert Foundation. I'm Alan Boswell, and this episode was produced by Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi. 